If we were to go back to the very beginning and look in Genesis 2 at what God commanded Adam in verse 16 when he said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God spoke in plain language. It was easy to understand. It was clear as a bell. And yet we read in Genesis 3 and verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. So Adam and Eve ate. The serpent spoke and God spoke. They both offered up information and they chose to believe the deceiver. And henceforth, all sorts of children are born to Adam and Eve that have in their sin nature a rebellion to believe God's word. That's why it's hard to believe When we think of Peter and all that he saw, we did this a few weeks ago, right? Peter should have believed as soon as those nets were breaking. He doubted God's, okay, I'll I'll throw the nets on this side of the boat. And then they break. And then he says, I'm a sinful man. That's all Peter should need. But he continued to mess up. He walks on the water and then he takes his eyes off Christ and he sinks and and. Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter confesses Jesus as Christ. Christ affirms that confession. He becomes proud in the moment and then instantly begins to rebuke Jesus. No, you're not going to die. And then Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. How long before Peter listens to Jesus' words? And they're arguing about who is the greatest. And then Jesus prays that Peter's faith and the disciples' faith would not fail. And it's as if Peter says, oh, you don't need to do that. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, no, you'll deny me three times. And he says, no, I'll die for you. And then Jesus said, pray, and he didn't pray. And then he denies him three times. How long is it going to take for Peter to believe the words of Christ? And as you read through the Gospels, you just see it over and over again. Oh, you of little faith. Matthew 6, 30. If God so clothes the grass of the field that today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Matthew 8, 26. 
He said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. (laughs) Their boat is going down. They're about to drown. And he says, why are you afraid? You shouldn't be afraid. Matthew 6, 8. Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourself the fact that you have no bread? Over and over and over again, we see this statement and we're tempted to think that we've been plagued, that we ought to be pitied for our little faith. We read this and it's almost, you can read those statements as though Christ is saying, oh, you're, you guys are so cute. You, you know, you just, you, you don't believe and it's sad. It's just a little bit of faith. But Charles Spurgeon, I think, helps us here. As I was reading Spurgeon on unbelief, here's what he says. We often talk of unbelief as if it were an affliction to be pitied instead of a crime to be condemned. Let me read that again. We often talk of unbelief as if it were an affliction to be pitied instead of a crime to be condemned. He goes on to say, even if a man had no other sin whatsoever, it is quite sufficient to condemn him forever that he neglects his God and turns away from his Savior. For unbelief is an act of high treason against the divine majesty, plucking at the crown jewel of Jehovah's truthfulness. The greatest sin, in fact, you think of it, you can't think of a sin that at the very root bottom of it isn't rooted in unbelief. You've never sinned a sin that wasn't at the root of it uh, unbelief. You can see pride at the root of every sin. There's pride in unbelief. You can see selfishness at the root of every sin. But ultimately... If we believed God, we wouldn't sin. If we believed he was good and his commands were good for us, we would obey because we all make decisions based on what we think is good for us. Spurgeon goes on and says this, unbelief calls itself honest doubt. All right? As we're struggling with, Unbelief, we call it honest doubt. It's almost like a virtue that we have. We're just being honest. We're just being real. And so he says, unbelief calls itself honest doubt and not without cause. For we should not have known it to be honest if we had not labeled it so. When a man puts up in a shop window, no cheating practiced here, I should trade next door. He protests too much. And so the fact that we call it honest doubt ought to bring, have us ask another question, say, is it really honest doubt or should we just call it sinful unbelief? Spurgeon says the main reason why we are not persuaded to be Christian, Christians, lies with, are the main reason why men are not persuaded to be Christians lies within their own hearts. 
It is not a flaw in the preacher's logic. It is a flaw in the hearer's nature. It is no mistake in the syllogism. It's an error in the hearer's will. So unbelief ultimately is a nature problem. It's a sin problem of our nature. Spurgeon goes on, it seems to me that an angel looking down upon a sinner who has rejected Christ will think of him as some sevenfold atrocity of nature. And then he says, the angels never never doubted him. The angels never doubt him, nor the devils either. We alone of all the beings that God has fashioned dishonor him by unbelief and tarnish his honor by mistrust. Have you ever thought about that? Of all that God created, we're the only creature that doubts the reality of God and his word. And so as we think about unbelief, you can't read this passage and not in one sense say, what is wrong with these two? We're going to look at it together. We're going to add up the facts. And in one sense, we're going to have our jaws drop, but then we're going to say, that's what I experienced too. But when we confess the sin of unbelief, Let's not confess it as some victims. Let's call it what it is. When we struggle to believe the word of God, it's a struggle against rebellion to the high king. And so here's how we're going to see this text. We're going to see disciples doubting at the beginning. Then we're going to see Christ as the pinnacle of all of Scripture in the middle. And then we're going to see the disciples' faith be inflamed. And we're going to see them share that faith. So let's look at the text together. See the disappointment of dense doubt. Look at verse 13. That very day, two of them, Two of them refers back to verse 9, which is speaking of the disciples. So this isn't the apostles. These are two of the disciples that would have hung out with the apostles. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. This is the day that Christ rose from the dead. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. They would have been talking about the whole week, All of Jerusalem is talking about this week. This is an incredible week. This is not a normal Passover week. Jesus has now been doing miracles for three years. Not only that, Christ drives the religious leaders out of the temple on Monday. And he teaches there Tuesday and Wednesday. Takes over the temple on their most important uh, days of the week, and then these false trials and sham trials are uh, put on by the religious leaders, and then he's delivered up to Rome to be crucified. And now on Resurrection Day, some incredible things are happening. 
So that's what they're talking about. They were discussing these things together. Or while they were talking and discussing these things together, Jesus drew near and went with them. Now this wouldn't have been unusual. This is how people traveled. It's often on foot. And it would have just been someone else walking on the same road, the road to Emmaus. And he walks up to them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It seems like maybe they were supernaturally kept from recognizing him. We don't know. Maybe Jesus had a hood up or whatever. They think he's dead, so they wouldn't be expecting it to be Jesus. Maybe Jesus in his resurrected body looked a little different. Uh, this seemed to be a theme when Jesus would show himself after his resurrection. At first glance, they didn't recognize him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? They stood still looking sad. And this is the key to this text and Jesus' rebuke. Now they are going to speak about all the sadness that they know of. And let's look at it. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before before God and all the people. So they believe his miracles and they believe his words. He's a prophet in mighty in word and deed. And then, he, and then they say, a man who is a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, the word redeem always meant a price being paid. They've just celebrated the Passover. The price being paid for the sins of the people on Passover is the Passover lamb. And they had hoped that he was the one, the Messiah, to redeem Israel. They had hoped, past tense, they had no conception of the Messiah dying, being crucified by his enemies because the Messiah was supposed to triumph over his enemies, not be killed by them. It made no sense. There can't be a Messiah who gets killed by his enemies if he's supposed to overcome his enemies. That's the block. That's the the logic. They cannot get their minds around And then they said, yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. And if you've been reading the Gospels closely, you're saying, what? You mean that he was delivered up by the chief priests and the rulers and condemned to death and crucified him? And besides this, it's the third day when Jesus had taught his disciples already 
Luke 9.22, This son of man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised? They articulated all that Jesus said. And they said, and besides this, it's the third day since he's been dead. The question is, is why do you look sad? And then they go on. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. So why are you guys sad? We thought he was the one to redeem Israel. He was delivered up by the chief priests. He was condemned to die. And then on the, it's the third day today, our women said he rose from the dead. Jesus had said that at least three or four different times to the disciples. To the detail. Sometimes saying they're going to spit on him. They're going to scourge him. They're going to mock him. But we're sad today. It's a sad day. Our women went to the tomb, found him not there. They even saw angels who said he was alive. I'm sorry, at this point, you just got to be saying, what is wrong with these guys? And then in, in verse 24, he even adds more to it. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. So they confirmed the empty tomb. But him they did not see. And so Jesus rightly says to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Foolish. <laughs> I call them dense doubters. They're, they're, it's foolish unbelief. Slow of heart to believe. He doesn't say there's no faith there, but this is a struggling faith. On the resurrection day, they're sad and they're walking away from Jerusalem and they haven't put the pieces together that Jesus is in fact the one to redeem Israel and to redeem his people from their sins. And notice what he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. He didn't say, why didn't you believe the women? Why didn't you believe your eyes? He goes back to the scripture. Why have you not believed all that the prophets have spoken. We understand how Jesus thinks of the Old Testament. There's some who think, well, the Old Testament, that can't be true. That's been changed so many times. It hasn't been preserved for us. There's crazy things in there. And yet Christ is calling them to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Over and over throughout the Gospels, Jesus said to his opponents, you are wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. The beef he has with the religious leaders is they don't know the Scriptures. They don't understand the Scriptures. 
Mark 12, 10, he says, have you never read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected have become the cornerstone. Have you never read? Have you not believed what the scripture says? What does the Old Testament reveal about the scripture? Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. How many people struggle in this world with depression, with hopelessness? Well, the Bible says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. How many people are depressed and don't know what to do? They need wisdom. They need direction. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing of the Rejoicing the heart. How many people need rejoicing of the heart? Where's that going to come from? It's going to come from the scripture that is right. The, can't, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clear, enduring, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. They should have known that their foundation ought to come from the Scripture. Scripture cannot be broken. Isaiah 40 verse 10 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. He says people are like grass. We're born, flourish for a moment, and then we wither and die. But God's word stands forever. Matthew 5, 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law un until it is accomplished. An iota is like a little uh, comma. Uh, the, the smallest mark of the law is not going to be taken out or not fail until all things are accomplished or fulfilled in Christ. And then we see that not only is Scripture true, John 10.35, he says it can't be broken. We see that in this text that Jesus says Scripture points to him. Look at verse 26. He says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So there can't comprehend a suffering Messiah, the suffering servant. They can't comprehend it. And yet he says, shouldn't the Old Testament scriptures have caused you to look for a perfect sacrifice? If the only way your sin can be dealt with is with the shedding of blood and obviously the blood of bulls and goats doesn't work or you wouldn't have to keep doing it over and over and over again. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then this is an incredible statement in verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them are he interpreted to them in all the scriptures 
the things concerning himself. So Jesus did for them the most loving thing anyone could ever do for them. Jesus didn't come to them and say, oh, I'm sorry, guys, you're having a rough day. You know, I really feel bad about that. This, this stuff is confusing. And, and, and you know, I, I just want to sympathize with you and that you're struggling with your unbelief here. But he, what he does is he comes and he explains the Bible to them. And our culture calls that unloving. The culture wants us to be therapists that just merely uh, sympathizes with, you know, people struggling with victims of, of struggling with unbelief. And yet Christ comes and he doesn't just say, here I am, resurrected from the dead, but he does something better for them first. He opens the Bible up. This is why we love biblical counseling. Because you can't give anything better to a person than the Word of God. Because the Word of God gives us Jesus Christ. And so he begins with Moses and all the prophets. He interprets the scriptures for them. He shows them through from Genesis all the way up. To the last book of the Old Testament, he shows them how it's all about him. He surely would have started in Genesis 3.15 when he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's the offspring. He would have showed them that right away at the very beginning, he is there, he maybe would have even gone to Genesis 1, showed how he's there in creation. And then when he clothes Adam and Eve out of animal skin garments in Genesis 3.21, he would have showed that their shame and their nakedness because of sin would need to be covered by a sacrifice, and he is that sacrifice. And then when Abel brings an offering in Genesis 4.4, 4, a sacrifice to the Lord uh, that is from the livestock and God is pleased with it. That Abel, to be pleasing to God, needs a sacrificial offering on his behalf. And then you look at the ark when Noah and his family that who were righteous because they trusted in Christ, but they were sinners. But they sailed safely through the wrath of God as they climbed into the ark. And Jesus would have showed them how he is that ark and people that climb into him will say, sail safely through the judgment of God and the wrath of God for sin. And surely he would have showed them how he is Abraham's son who's going to bring a blessing and how Isaac, God called Abraham to do the craziest thing. You would think that once Isaac finally shows up in, in Sarah and Abraham's old age, 
that they would have just protected him. You know, don't let him do anything. And then God says, sacrifice him. And they take him up and he's going to sacrifice his only son and God stays his hand. And there's a ram caught in the thicket and Jesus would have showed that I am the, I am the ram. I'm the one whom God has provided. There is a father that slaughters his son and that's my father and I am the son. This would have been, if I could pick any time to live, I think I'd be on this road. I want to hear this sermon. I want to watch Jesus do this, interpret the scripture for them. And then we have the Passover lamb. And then we have uh, the rock in the wilderness, the spiritual drink and how Christ is the living water that satisfies and he's the bread where you can get nourishment and spiritual life through him and how his body is that bread offered for those who would trust in him. And then surely he would have showed them how David's psalm in Psalm 22 just describes his crucifixion down to the piercing of his hands and feet and casting of lots for his clothing. And he would would have said, did you hear what I cried out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first line of Psalm 22. And then surely Isaiah 53 that just describes how he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. How God poured out the judgment on him for them. He would have gone through all this, showed them the Messianic Psalms and how they point to him. Show us how the whole book of Leviticus that seems like a burden now no longer is a burden because the final sacrifice has come. It would have been incredible to be there. And they still don't know it's Jesus. But what's happening to them is they're understanding the word of God. And then we read in verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it was towards evening. And the day is now far spent. What do they want? They want more word. This is incredible. They're understanding the scripture. They want more of it. They still don't know it's Jesus. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, which would have been out of sorts. Because the one who gives thanks for the meal is the host of the meal. And Jesus is out of turn here. But it's in him being out of turn and taking control here that they recognize who he is. And the veil is taken off their eyes. They discover this to be Christ. So he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. It's an incredible day if you're these two. It's an incredible day. 
What are they going to talk about first? Isn't one of the best parts of fellowship, you get to like, when something good happens with other people, you get to talk about it. You get to say, did you see that? Isn't this incredible? To, to experience something incredible and to be alone feels like such a ripoff. You got to call somebody. You got to tell somebody what you're excited about. And they have each other. And in verse 32, they say to each other, did not our hearts burn when he revealed himself to us and then did the miracle of vanishing? That's not what they said. What they said is, is did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures. You see, if the best part of that day was the miracle they saw in Jesus and his resurrected body and then his vanishing from their sight, then you and I can sit here and say, man, I wish I would have lived back then to see those things. But you want to know what set their heart aflame? You want to know what's better than a miracle seen? You want to know what's better than a vision? You want to know what's better than just seeing a resurrected Christ? It's understanding the Old Testament scriptures and how they point to Christ and how he's the fulfillment of them. And guess what? All that is in front of us. All of that we can have. We've been given these scriptures. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. When their hearts are inflamed, their faith is inflamed. I, I can't help but think of, Second Peter 1, when Peter's trying to talk about how sure the word of God is, he compares it to the transfiguration, the miraculous miracle they got to see when Christ is in his glorious state and, and he got to see Elijah and Moses standing with him on the mountain. Here's what he says in verse 18 of second peter 1 we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you'll do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Peter's saying, I saw it, I was there, but we have something more fully confirmed. You're in a dark place. You're in a dark world. He goes on, he starts chapter two. He tells them about false teachers. But he says, if you want a foundation for your feet, it's not the miracle I saw. It's the scripture. You put your feet on that and the false teachers can't touch you. You're protected. 
Someone has a vision. Someone, God does a miracle. Great. That's not the foundation for your feet. What if that person's lying? What if Satan brought that about? What if this? What if that? The foundation for our feet is Scripture fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ perfectly. John MacArthur writes, by, revealing him, by not revealing himself to them until after, after he explained the scripture, Jesus modeled the principle that the power lies in the explanation of biblical truth, not in the person doing the explaining. You realize that? If I get hit by a truck this week and I die, you're not in trouble. Because what you need is not me. You don't need a personality. You don't need a certain teacher. What you need is the Word of God to put your feet on. What you need is someone who views this job as delivering God's Word to you. And then we see how Inflamed hearts start fires of faith through the gospel. I love this. In the pitch black, verse 33, it's at night now, it's evening. It would be dark by now. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. I can't, I can't imagine. What, what do giddy, excited People, I mean, I can, I can just imagine as they're running, talking about this. I just wish I was, I do wish I was there. We'll get to talk to them about it. But as they returned to Jerusalem, they found the 11. They couldn't just, just have each other. They found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. And here's what they're saying when they walk in. The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They don't even get to preach first. They get preached to that Christ is risen and that Peter has seen him. And then finally, they get to explode forth. They told what had happened on the road. Well, what happened on the road? A sermon happened on the road teaching about interpretation of Scripture happen on the road. Nothing miraculous happened on the road except the Scriptures being opened to them. And yes, they're excited about seeing Jesus too and how He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. but they're still human. Next, not next week's text, but two weeks from now, if we're just to read on, here's what we read in verse 36 of Luke 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your hearts. 
Now, why are doubts rising in their hearts? Their sin nature is not dead yet. When you trusted in Christ that day, your old man was nailed to a cross. Crucifixion's a slow death. And you have a choice. You can keep that. You can feel sorry for that dying old self. And you can feel sorry for it and try to nurse it back to health. Or you can try to ex- make the death go quicker. By the power of the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. But they still have remaining sin. And so they still have rising doubts about God in His words. Even as Jesus stands in front of them. So what do we do? If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. Christ has died in your place. He's been the sacrifice. He's paid the price. He's risen from the dead. He's guaranteed your resurrection. The Holy Spirit has been put inside of you. It's the Holy Spirit, which means there's a war on any remaining sin in your life. And there's a battle within. The flesh is at war with the spirit. Your old nature is at war with the spirit of God. They never agree. And so for a Christian, the battle begins. The war begins within the heart. And to end this morning, we need to ask, so what do we do? So what do we do? I'll, I'll never forget about 18 years ago, I was a youth pastor in Minnesota. And one of my really good friends, Ryan, started running marathons, started training for marathons. And he would run, you know, sometimes 11 miles a day, sometimes seven miles a day. And he would tell me about this. And I was pretty proud in my own mind, confident in my own athletic ability. And one day I was over at his house and he needed to go on a jog seven mile run. And I said, I'll go with you. And he kind of chuckled. And then the challenge was on. And I have like basketball shoes on. And I said, all right, let's go. I'll run with you. And so he put a heart monitor on me or whatever. So you can see my, how many, how fast my heart's beating. And I'm a half mile in and I'm all, my body's already shutting down. I don't know what that's called, but you know what I, some of you know what I'm talking about. But I hung with him all seven miles until the last half mile. He wanted to show me that his four months of training before this actually does something for you. And he he blew the doors off me back to his house. But I ran the whole thing. And I couldn't walk for like two weeks. (laughs) My, My feet hurt so bad. And as Christians, I think this is how we treat our our. Christian life. We kind of think like, I got this. I don't have to work in my faith. I've already, I've already believed. I can just show up and a big challenge can be in front of me and I can run and I can win and I can dominate. But nothing in the scripture would tell us to think that way. One of my favorite scriptures comes from Hebrews chapter 3. And if you have your Bibles, turn there with me in closing here. The writer of Hebrews is, this is a sermon. 
This this whole book of the Bible is, is a sermon calling Christians to remain with Christ. And he's giving an illustration about how those in the wilderness, they saw a lot of miracles and they saw some pretty incredible things and their faith failed. And so he says in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And so here's his solution. Take care, brothers. He's talking to Christians. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now listen to me. He's talking to Christians and he says, take care lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart. Meaning that the moment you believe doesn't mean your faith is going to soar. Paul gets to the end of his life and he called it a fight. He called it a race, like a marathon. And so he says, take care. Don't be an idiot. You got you to gird up the loins of your minds for this. And so he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Your faith is never neutral. Your your faith is either slowly fading away from the living God or it's slowly being built up in faith to Him. There is no neutral. And so He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called the day, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin lies to you. Sin is like that serpent that came and said, did God really say? And the writer of Hebrews says, you need your brothers and sisters in Christ every day or sin will start to deceive you and you'll start to think wrongly and you'll start to believe lies. Which means Christianity cannot just be lived from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday or even Sunday to Wednesday, Sunday. God describes our faith needing exhortation. Needing one another. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over again. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And it's not just to begin your salvation, but it's so that you remain a believer throughout the entirety of your life. Once saved, always saved. Yes, that's true. But the question is, how are you going to continue to believe? Well, you're going to continue to believe by hearing the gospel, preaching the gospel to one another and over and over again. That's why during the high priestly prayer, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he says this, John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What does the evil one do? He lies. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. 
sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He doesn't say sanctify them in the miracles they're going to see. He says sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And in that prayer he says, I've delivered them your word. And they've believed your word. Father, I thank you that although our hearts tend to doubt, you haven't left us with nothing, but you've given us your word. You've given us one another to preach the truth to one another. Father, I pray that any sense of isolation that we tend to do, where we separate ourselves from believers, where we tend to think, I can do this on my own. It's as foolish as thinking I'm going to go run seven miles and be fine. Father, I pray that you would build this up in your word. Thank you that our hearts can be aflamed. 2,000 years later, even as we see your scripture culminate in fulfillment in the person of Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.